Well, again, this morning I assure you that I feel a lot better than I sound, but I want to apologize at the outset for uh, perhaps taking a few extra sips of water than I normally might, coughing more than I normally might, and uh, sermon audio will just have to suffer this Sunday. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ruth. The Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth is a book that I have wanted to preach through here at Christ Fellowship for a while. And originally I had envisioned perhaps expositing this book on Wednesday nights and going through it at a much slower pace. But the schedule just doesn't seem to fit for that with what we have going on Wednesdays and Sundays right now. But I have finished a chapter in 1 Corinthians where we've been going through now for a while. And I wanted to take a little bit more of an extended break from that epistle. And so what I intend on doing is preaching through the book of Ruth uh, a chapter at a time. So it'll be quite different than the smaller verse-by-verse expositions that we find in 1 Corinthians in the epistles. And perhaps I'm biting off more than I can chew in attempting to preach through the entirety of this book in only four sessions, only four Lord's Day sermons, but I trust that God will bless the exposition of his word, even if time requires us to move faster than we'd like, and I still plan uh, at some point, maybe next year or so, to go through this at our prayer meeting at a much slower pace, because there is just so much here in this little book, Uh, but I trust that the Lord will bless us in the next four sessions, four Sundays, as we consider the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is composed of four of the most gem-packed chapters in all of the Word of God. Ruth is stocked full of historical facts and theological truth and practical application. Ruth is a book of redemption. It is also a book of revival. And it is also a book of romance. That means that the themes and the messages and the applications of Ruth apply to a very wide audience. If you are here and you do not know the one true and living God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Ruth will show you what God has done to bring sinners to Himself who were at one time strangers and alienated from His grace. If you are a believer, but you find yourself in an apathetic, discouraged, depressed, or even backslidden condition, The book of Ruth will show you what God has done for His most afflicted children to revive them and ignite their hearts to once again live for His glory. If you are seeking to discern God's will for your life concerning marriage, you don't know when or who or how or if God will bring you a spouse or you think He might be in the process of doing so but you're just not entirely sure or perhaps you're married but you're lacking a full-orbed biblical view of manhood and womanhood and what a husband and a wife should be for one another, wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, the book of Ruth has some very practical and encouraging guidance for you. The book of Ruth could be viewed and preached from any of these angles, but for our few sessions together, I want us to consider Ruth in light of an overarching element in the book, that guides all of the aforementioned aspects. All of these domains, redemption, revival, romance, and all of the practical lessons that flow from them are directed and predetermined by a superimposing principle that I am convinced is really the primary theme of this entire book. The central theme of the book of Ruth is the providence of God in the lives of His people. God did not just give you the book of Ruth so you could read an entertaining story about an Israelitish family that lived 3,000 years ago, though the book of Ruth is that. It's an incredibly entertaining story. It's better than anything Hollywood can ever dream up. God did not give you the book of Ruth just so you could have some practical lessons on courtship and marriage, though the book of Ruth contains that as well. God gave us the book of Ruth So that we could learn that He is the one behind the scenes working out His sovereign plan 
for our lives, for His glory, for our good. And this sovereign plan for His glory and our good is called the providence of God. My chief prayer for us is that in addition to all else God will teach us from Ruth, we will learn more about His glorious providence. That we might not only learn about His providence, but come to trust in and even love His providence. You can only love the providence of God if you know something about the character of God. Because to say that there is a God in heaven who sovereignly orchestrates all things that come to pass, well, that could be really, really wonderful or really, really terrible depending on the character of God. (coughs) But loving the providence of God, as we will see in Ruth, is not always easy for us to do. The book of Ruth is a book for people who wonder, where is God in the midst of tragedy and calamity? It is a book for people who wonder if a life of integrity in the midst of tough times is really worth it. It is a book for people who look around, they consider their own lives, and they wonder, what is God doing? So we turn our attention to this narrative of a small family from Israel. And we see the providential hand of God in our own lives. There are a number of things I want you to see in Ruth chapter number 1. <clears throat> but before we begin, uh, let me read the entirety of this first chapter for you. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. Now it came to pass, in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, the name of his two sons, Malan and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. They took them wives of the women of Moab, The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malan and Kilian died also, both of them, and the women, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. (coughs) For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, And they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. They lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee. Or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her. She left speaking unto her. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? 
And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me? The Almighty hath afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. There's a number of things I want you to see in this text. The first is a cause for despair. A cause for despair. The first five verses in the book of Ruth are one of the saddest paragraphs in the whole Bible. From the natural vantage point, everything is going wrong. Nothing looks hopeful. This is one of the lowest and darkest points in the history of Israel. And God wants you to know that. Because He wants to teach you through this little book that you still have access to immense joy when you find Him and trust Him in the midst of the most perilous times. For the Christian, you must understand that your joy is not contingent upon the external circumstances, but upon the inward reality of Christ in your life. So as we see this call to despair, I want you to remember that, that no matter what is happening to you externally, your hope does not come from the outside, but from within. This is a major lesson in the book of Ruth, and God teaches it, by bringing us along with Naomi and her family through these hard times. Well, just how bad was it? Well, oftentimes we like to romanticize our miseries, don't we? We like to play the misery comparison game. Oh, you had it this bad? Well, let me tell you, I had it so much worse. Well, don't play that game with Naomi. She will win. I promise you, she will win. She's, she's really good at playing the misery Comparison games, we'll see in chapter 1. Notice in verse 1, it begins by telling us that this narrative came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. This is both a historical marker and a theological indicator of the setting of the book of Ruth. We know from this that the narrative took place somewhere between 1250 B.C. and 1050 B.C. We're talking about something that happened 3,000 years ago. The last verse of the book of Judges. Look, look at your Bible. You probably just have to look up earlier in the page. Judges 21 and verse 25 says this. In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It was a day that was characterized by autonomy. By an absence of authority. And We, we see that in our day, do we not? What's the last thing anybody wants? Someone to tell them what to do. We, we want to do whatever we want to do. Well, that's what was going on in the book of Judges. Israel as a nation was on the verge of collapse. And had not God raised up judges by sheer mercy, they would have been totally destroyed ten times over. Israel was wrecking their own society. They were apostatizing turning away from the Lord, keeping after other gods, abandoning the word of the Lord. Enemies would come, and just when it seemed like Israel would be decimated, God would raise up a judge who would rally Israel, and we'd see a little bit of a revival, just enough to stay the destructing hand of God. So that's the setting that the book of Ruth takes place in. But it gets worse because we see from verse 1 that there's also a famine in the land. A famine in the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. One of the most fertile plots of land on the planet is producing no food. <coughs> the famine has no doubt stricken Israel as a judgment of God. He promised in the Old Testament that famine would be one of the judgments that would come upon his people if they disobeyed him and turned from following his law. The famine itself is a call to repent. The famine itself is 
preaching to Israel, you need to turn back to the Lord. So, days when the judges ruled, famine in the land, but it gets worse. Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and their two sons and runs from the judgment of God and goes down to Moab. Instead of turning back to the Lord, they turn their backs on the Lord. But it gets worse. Because after going to Moab, Elimelech dies. Now Naomi is left a widow in a foreign land, estranged from Israel, estranged from the one place that God promised to bless his people and be their God and they would be his people. She's estranged from Israel and now she's a widow. But it gets worse. Her two sons marry Moabitess women. Women who were outside of God's covenant community. Women who were pagans. Women who were not followers of the God of Israel. We see from these verses how sin multiplies itself. Verse 2 tells us that Elimelech and his family were Ephrathites. You see that? It says, the name of the man was Elimelech, name of his wife Naomi, name of his two sons Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. An Ephrathite was an original settler of Bethlehem and a prominent member of the community. So Elimelech was not low class. Uh, He was not running to Moab because of poverty. No, he was running to Moab because he was a very prominent member of society and he thought that by going to Moab, he might be able to maintain his wealth and maintain his place in society. Had he stayed in Israel and ridden out the famine, he would have probably had to cut into his funds and his assets just to survive. So he thought, I've got an idea. Instead of staying here in Israel, we'll run to Moab, we'll sojourn there a little while, we'll wait out this famine because there's no food in Israel. That's Elimelech's thinking. We see how that worked out for him. Naomi has gone from being a well-respected wife of a man who was probably wealthy and well-known to being a destitute widow estranged from Israel in Moab with two foreigners for in-laws. But it gets worse. Because in verse 5, after losing her home, after losing her husband, after losing her dignity, she loses both of her sons. Malin and Killian died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Naomi now finds herself in the most dismal condition an Israelite could be in. As a woman in those days, going out and finding a a work and creating a career was impossible in, in a society like that. Not only was she a widow, she was a destitute poor widow stranded in Moab with two foreigners for daughters-in-law. She is a woman that has been afflicted by a very hard, very bitter providence. Famine in the land, a move to a pagan land, death of her family, an intermarriage with pagans. God delivers these five verses in such a sharp, staccato-y, intentional way that we feel the pain of Naomi as she is dealt blow after blow. Now, we read these five verses and it makes it sound like it's just happening one after the other, but what we find is that, that this was ten years of her life. This was a period that lasted a decade of her life. Miserable befalling after miserable befalling. Her life was not supposed to play out like this. Verse 1, Elimelech never intended on staying in Moab. Notice it says, he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. What what does it mean to sojourn? Not to move there permanently, but just to to sojourn there for a while, just to stay there for a little while. But in verse 2, it says they 
continued there. And in verse 4, it tells us that that period lasted about 10 years. And Naomi, who was following her husband, is stricken by a tsunami of afflictions. We learn from this, number one, men, God will hold you personally accountable for how you lead your families. Elimelech led his wife and his sons into Moab, into sin. He saw the direction that the Lord was trying to bring them, and he ran the opposite way, and his sin destroyed his family. I'm not saying that Naomi was entirely innocent in this. We don't know. She might have thought that going to Moab was a wonderful idea, and she might have heartily supported it, She might have pleaded with him not to go. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. We know that she did follow him. We know she's not entirely innocent of this sin. But yet she was the one who arguably suffered more than Elimelech, Malin, or Killian. Men, when God reveals sin in your life, secret sin, Perhaps sin in your heart that your wife is unaware of. Don't allow that sin to foster and develop within you because that sin that fosters and develops within you will come out and it will have negative impacts upon your family. Kill that sin before it gets out and kills your family. An Ephrathite of Bethlehem doesn't just wake up one morning and lead his whole family to Moab. Nobody ever falls into sin. They slide. Very slowly. As they begin to walk a little less closely to the Lord. And they abandon Him step by step and day by day until one day they make a decision to pack up and leave Israel and go down to Moab. Elimelech wanted to preserve his reputation and his money, but men, what your wife and children need is not a wealthy, prosperous, well-liked man, but they need a godly husband and a godly father who will lead them in the things of God. That's what they need. And second thing we learn from the first five verses is that the providence of God is sometimes very hard and very mysterious. Do you think Naomi was asking why? Why would a good God deal so bitterly with her? Why would she suffer these afflictions? Other people had done similar things and they hadn't suffered this way. I was just following my husband, God. Why am I suffering this way? Ten years of pain. The Puritan John Flavel said about the mysterious providence of God, that the providence of God is like the Hebrew language. You can only understand it when you read it backwards. (coughs) And I know that sermon after sermon has been preached on How to understand the providence of God. Somebody writes a book. How to discern God's will in your life. But the thing about the providence of God is that you don't understand it. At least not in the midst of it. If you did, there would be no need for faith. That's what God is teaching us in the book of Ruth. The providence of God is mysterious. We don't have access to the blueprints, but we do know something about the architect. And one thing will be very clear before we get to the end of this book. When you can't see the hand of God, you can always trust the heart of God. Because what we will find is that in the midst of this utter turmoil, God, by His providence, is working out unfathomable glory in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. 
We don't want to skim over and downplay the harsh realities of these first five verses. God wants you to feel it. wants you to feel it. Perhaps some of you find yourself in a similar place. <coughs> You're in a period right now. It just seems like hardship after hardship and blow after blow. You don't know, Lord, what are you doing? Why am I going through this? Will there ever be a light at the end of the tunnel? May you not only see a cause for despair in this text, but I want you to also see a call to return. A call to return. Beginning in verse 6, we see this call to return. The first five verses are full of hardship and depression. But here's the thing about the book of Ruth. For the rest of the book, beginning at chapter 1 and verse number 6, God begins to unfold blessing after blessing. We've hit the lowest point that we will hit at verse 5. The overall story hits a major upswing in verse 6 of chapter 1, and it keeps trending upward into more grace and more mercy and more glory until the book is over. But Naomi and Ruth can't see it yet. When depression gets a grip on you, it is nearly impossible to see any ray of hope. All you can focus on is your misery and your pain and the hard providence of God. And you're completely oblivious to the goodness of God that begins showing up in your life. It's going to take Naomi two whole chapters before she realizes how good God is being to her. Ruth is a book of four chapters in 85 verses. 85 verses. The first five verses describe Naomi's just devastating misery. What she doesn't see, what she doesn't know, is that there's still 80 verses left. Five verses of misery. There's 80 verses left. And if you're here and you feel like you're living... In five verses of agony, let me remind you, there's still 80 verses left. There's still 80 verses left in your life. God is not done with her story, and He is not done with your story. And could it be, like Naomi, that God has brought you through this season of pain and suffering to prepare you for an experience of His grace and glory that you could have never imagined? We sang in the hymn this morning, the calm will be better because of the storms that we endured. So there's a call to return in this text, beginning in verse 6. Naomi is a destitute widow in Moab when somehow she hears in verse 6 the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. The famine is over. First first positive thing we see in Ruth, verse 6, the famine is over. Do not see the faithfulness of God in this verse The Lord ended the famine and fed His people, but more than that, He made sure that Naomi heard about it. How did she find out? She's down in Moab. She didn't get on Twitter and and scroll through Twitter and see that they were tweeting about it. Oh, it's trending. The famine is over in Israel. How, How did she... We don't know how she found out about it. She found out about it. When God purposes to work in your life, He will make sure that you know everything you need to know. Okay? He will get the message to you. When God purposes to save a sinner out of Moab, out of their sin, He's going to get the gospel to them. And He's going to make sure that they know the Lord has visited His people and He's given them bread. God was not obligated to end the famine. God was not obligated to send this news of His mercy to Naomi. 
They chose to go to Moab. And God would have been totally just to leave her there. Every human being that has ever lived, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of them experienced hostility and a severance in their relationship towards God. Every single one of them. From the moment Adam sinned in the garden, you had relationship problems with God. Naomi had relationship problems with God. Her family, had they were not on good terms with God when they left and went to Moab. Every single person that has ever had relationship problems with God, it has always been their fault, not God's fault. But who is the one who initiates reconciliation? In every single case, it is God who initiates reconciliation, not the one who caused the division. That's called grace. Because God would have been totally just. Naomi, you chose to go to Moab. You chose to not believe me. I said I would give you this land as your inheritance. I said I would bless you here. Oh, I know there was a famine, but I said I would bless you here. And you looked around, you walked by sight and not by faith, and you went to Moab with Elimelech, and I'm done with you. He could have done that. God could have done that. He could have done that to you. You chose to follow your sins. You chose to chase after your lusts. Well, just chase them right to hell. But he didn't do that with Naomi, and he didn't do that with you, did he? He sent a messenger Somehow, some way, through the word preached, through the word read, through, somehow, some way, he got a message to you that he had visited his people and he had given bread. And then you, like Naomi in verse 6, you, you, you arose and you returned. We see the faithfulness of God not only in his provision for us, but in telling us of his provisions for us. Right. Not only has he sent his son to die on the cross as a propitiation for sin... He has ordained and orchestrated the preaching of the gospel so that you can hear this message of salvation 2,000 years later. Name one other historical event that you know more about, that the world knows more about, that happened 2,000 years ago than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has preserved the message of salvation. If you find yourself living in Moab and afflicted under bitter providence, it brings me great joy to tell you this morning that there's bread in Bethlehem. No matter how bad things have gotten, no matter how deep your sins have taken you, when you feel you can't go on, when you feel all hope is lost, there's bread in Bethlehem. Right now. This is a call to return. That's just what Naomi did. She musters up just enough faith and strength to head towards Israel. She doesn't recognize all that God's doing, but something that's leading her, she's going back to Israel. Two-thirds of this book is dialogue. The first lines begin in verse 8. In verses 8 through 13, Naomi is pleading with her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, not to come back with her to Bethlehem. Now, Anytime you have a narrative, a historical narrative, especially, I mean, this is covering a period of 12 years. The 10 years in Moab, and then the one or two years on both ends. There's a lot that the narrator doesn't include. So it makes us ask the question, why did God inspire the narrator to devote six verses to this conversation where Naomi is persuading Orpah and Ruth not to come back? Look at it, verse 8. Naomi said unto her daughters-in-law, Go and return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Don't come back. She'll, she'll start to give reasons why not to come back. I, I don't have any more sons to give you. Hmm. Well, that seems very odd. 
in our modern context. So why did the narrator include this conversation? Five reasons I'm going to give you for why the narrator included this conversation. Number one, to detail the state of Naomi's heart. To detail the state of Naomi's heart. Thus far, we've read about what's happened to Naomi, but here we see her expressing the sentiment of her own heart at the end of these ten miserable years. It's the first time we hear her speak. We, we know what's happened to her, but now she's telling us how she feels about it. Verse 13, she says, It grieves me for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi is saying to Orpah and Ruth, Don't come with me! God is against me. Let me live out the rest of my days depressed and alone. Secondly, narrator includes this conversation to highlight the cost of following God and becoming his people. Naomi placed Orpah and Ruth at a crossroads. She she gave them a real decision that they had to come to grips with. They could have everything Minus Jehovah in Moab. Or they could have Jehovah minus everything in Israel. Our Lord uses similar language in the New Testament when he speaks of the cost of becoming his disciple. Jesus persuades people not to follow him. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. He who does not take up his cross is not worthy of me. Let the dead bury their dead because anyone who comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and his own life also cannot be my disciple. That's what what Naomi's saying to Orpah and Ruth. If you come with me, you will have to forsake everything. You'll leave your family. You'll leave hopes of remarriage. You'll leave hopes of having children again. You, 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 You will have to forsake everything. Third reason this conversation is included is to illustrate the awful fate of apostasy. Because Orpah hears all this and makes her choice. She kisses Naomi in verse 14. She turns back. She doesn't follow Naomi, thus she doesn't follow the Lord. She's never mentioned again in all She started out on the journey, but once she realized the cost of following Jehovah... She turned back. Orpah is a picture of apostasy. Fourth, this conversation prepares us for a custom in Israel. To understand the book of Ruth, you have to understand some things about the laws that governed the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 25, God implemented Leverite marriage in which the brother of a deceased man was required to marry his brother's widow if he died without a son. Now that, again, that just seems bizarre in our modern context, but it wasn't bizarre at all to Israel. God implemented that law, along with other ceremonial laws, to preserve the Abrahamic line through which the Messiah was to come. That's why God preserved that ethnic people amongst all these other nations Because that was the line through which Christ was to come. And if we don't understand this, Naomi's statements in verses 11 and 12 would seem quite odd. When Naomi says, I don't have any more sons in my womb, and even if I did, you wouldn't wait until they were old enough to marry. Well, we might say, well, why, why do, what does it matter if you have any more sons? Can't Orpah and Ruth just marry other men in Israel? Well, no, because one, a faithful Israelite would not marry a Moabitess with no money. And number two, because a seed has to be raised for Elimelech, Kilian, and Malin. And fifthly, this conversation is included to exemplify Ruth's faithfulness. In spite of all this, Ruth was purposed to follow Naomi anyways. Notice, after the call to return in verse 14, we see a covenantal commitment. These are the most famous verses in the book of Ruth. If you've never read the book of Ruth, you've probably seen these verses. 
on a t-shirt or on a poster somewhere. And as incredible as they are by themselves, they are even more so when we consider them in their context. Notice in verse 14 that Orpah leaves, but Ruth cleaves. And what follows is one of the clearest and strongest professions of faith and evidences of a true conversion. Ruth says in verse 16, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Now, we don't know what happened in Ruth's heart over the last ten years. But we do know that the work of God upon her soul is evident. In fact, at this point, Ruth the Moabitess seems to have more trust in God than Naomi the Jew. Naomi was a wealthy, prominent Israelite. Ruth had never stepped foot in Israel. She'd never seen the blessings of God. She'd never been to church. She'd never read the Bible. And she trusted in the God of Israel. Evidently, God has given her the gifts of faith and repentance. She has had a faith to see beyond the hardships of the last ten years. She has a faith that causes her to hope in God. She has a faith that is determined to go to the place where she heard the Lord had visited His people. That's what faith will do. Faith will make you go wherever you hear that God is. And it will keep you away from where God is not. The apex of this statement echoes the covenantal language that God Himself uses all throughout the Old Testament. What does God say to Israel over and over again? You will be my people and I will be your God. And Ruth says, Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. The duration of this commitment shows no signs of doubt or wavering. Naomi, where you die, I will die. That means that this commitment wasn't just to Naomi. Because even after Naomi dies, Ruth was committed to remaining in Israel and serving Jehovah. Naomi, if we get back to Israel, you, you die, I'm going to keep living there and serving God. If I, if the Lord, if I outlive you 30 years, I'm going to keep living there, and where you die, I'm going to die and be buried right next to you. Well, we mentioned at the outset that this book contains practical lessons godliness and character. And here in Ruth's covenantal commitment, we see five traits that are characteristic of this kind of experiential godliness. Number one, I want you to see that Ruth has a faith in God that sees beyond the bitter setbacks. We talked about Naomi's misery, but think of Ruth's misery. She lost a husband. She lost a father-in-law. She lost a sister-in-law. Though Naomi doesn't yet realize it, Ruth is exactly what she needs at this moment in her life. She's looking at Ruth right now as a burden. She will soon see that Ruth is a blessing. When the darkness sets in, when it's hard to find hope, we need someone that will come alongside us and take our hand and say, I know you can't see the light right now, but I can, and I'm with you. That's what Ruth did for Naomi. Secondly, Ruth has has the courage to venture into the strange and the unknown. She does not place her trust in the material things that she can touch and feel. Rather, she places her faith in things that she's never seen with the physical eye. Ruth teaches us that we ought not to get so comfortable where we are or so reliant on the things that we possess that we don't step out and serve God. Third, Ruth has a steadfast commitment to the God-appointed relationships in her life. She has come to see that Naomi is not in her life by accident. 
She begins to recognize the providence of God and she is loyal to Naomi. Fourthly, Ruth has a freedom to serve God in spite of the difficulties and hardships that she's faced with. Her husband has died. Her sister-in-law has turned back. She has no money. She's leaving her home. But because her faith is in the God of Israel who visits his people and gives them bread, her trials and tribulations don't cripple her ability to follow God. If our focus is always upon our temporal condition, we will live out our days in a crippling fear and anxiety that prevents us from coming to God. But when our focus is upon Him and upon who He is, we begin to delight in Him even in the midst of hard times. And when we delight in God in the midst of hard times, we come to God for the sake of God, not for what we think God might give us. Ruth did not follow Jehovah in hopes of a better life. Because Naomi told her, you come to Israel, there's no promise that it'll be any better. Ruth followed Jehovah because of Jehovah. Don't come to Christ because of what you think He might give you. Come to Christ for Christ. And if you come to Christ for Christ, He will give you Himself. Fourthly, in verses 19 through 21, They have now made the journey from Moab and they're entering into Bethlehem and we see, fourthly, a confession of God's sovereignty. When they arrive in the city, the whole town is stirred. The other citizens of Bethlehem can hardly believe what they're seeing. And they say in verse 19, Is this Naomi? hardships of those last 10 years, the, the sin that has so characterized her life has had a physical effect on her. Is that Naomi? We never thought we'd see her again. And the confession that Naomi gives in verse 20, verse 21, stands as a contrast to Ruth's hopeful commitment just a few verses earlier. Not only do we see the way Naomi feels about her trials, but we also see what she makes of them. This is, this is what Naomi understands thus far in the book about the providence of God. She essentially confesses three things. She confesses that there is a God, that He is sovereign, that it is He who has afflicted her. And she makes two key statements, one in verse 20 and one in verse 21. These statements reflect an accurate apprehension of the cause of her troubles, but not an accurate apprehension of the purpose of her troubles. That's Naomi's problem in chapter 1. She knows who has afflicted her, but she doesn't know why. So she says in verse 20, Call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi is not saying that she is bitter towards God or that God is bitter towards her. Rather, she is saying that the providence of God in her life has taken her through a bitter and painful path. She realizes that the ultimate cause of her trouble is the sovereignty of God. And that makes us a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? In our sentimental view of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and He would never ever lead you into anything that might cause you the least bit of pain. It's easy for us to be hard on Naomi, but I would take Naomi's confession any day over this sentimental, watered-down, wishy-washy view of God. She realizes that God is all-powerful and she can handle this truth of God's sovereignty. When something bad happens to us, we like to say, oh, that's just the devil trying to attack us. That's just Satan trying to cast a snare in your life. Naomi had enough biblical wisdom to say, no, these things have happened to me. They've come from the sovereign hand of God. And by the way, even when Satan does attack you, and even when Satan does lay a snare in, in your path, it's only because 
God gave him the permission to do so. Perhaps God even recommended it to him like he did with Job. Hey, Satan, have you considered Job? (laughs) My servant? Surely God doesn't ordain pain and suffering, right? Surely God would never ordain anything in your life that would cause you agony, right? No one had more God-ordained pain and suffering in their life than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ's death on the cross and all of His sufferings, as Peter says in Acts chapter number 2, they were according to the predeterminate counsel of God. His mockings, His scourgings, His beatings, being nailed to the tree, came from the sovereign hand of God. God ordains all things that come to pass that includes your pain and suffering. Well, preacher, how can we believe this with joy? Because you said at the beginning that, that we can have joy in the midst of hard times. Let me ask it another way. How come Naomi did believe this, but it didn't cause her to rejoice? She believed it. She believed that this was God's hand of providence in her life. But it didn't cause her joy. It caused her depression. Because Naomi understood the cause of her afflictions, but she didn't understand the purpose of her afflictions. We know that because look at what she says in verse 21. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Was that true? No, it wasn't true. The Lord had not brought her home empty. The Lord brought her home with Ruth. The Lord brought her home with a daughter-in-law that pledged her lifelong loyalty to her and to her God. So let's not be too hard on Naomi lest we become hypocrites ourselves. Don't we do the exact same thing? Some hard providence strikes us. We have no idea why God is doing what He's doing and we just lose all hope. My life is over. God is through with me. I will never find joy again. When we can't see the hand of God, we must trust the heart of God. We must look through the darkness. We must see the rays of light shining through. Naomi was in such despair because she failed to see God's goodness to her And she did not even consider a higher purpose for her suffering. He called her out of Moab. He ended the famine. He gave her Ruth. And more than that, he gave her promise after promise in the Old Testament. God gives you promise after promise in the Old and the New Testament. That's why we're reading Romans 8 in our scripture reading. Because God promises Not that all things in your life are good, but that all things in your life, if you love God, are working together for your good. And that includes your pain. And that includes your suffering. And that's how we have joy in the midst of hard times. Because the pain and the suffering and the hardship are just one ingredient to a glorious masterpiece that God is putting together called your life, called His providence. Perhaps the greatest sign of blessing to come is found in verse 22. The last thing you'll see in this chapter, verse 22, I want you to see a clue of future hope. Verse 22, if we didn't understand anything about the historical context, we'd read this and think, well, what what is the narrator saying to us here? It's in significant little detail. They returned to Israel at the beginning of the barley harvest. The beginning of the barley harvest. Early spring, around April, close to the time of the Passover, that's when they came back to Israel. That was the best possible time they could have returned to Israel. And it was no coincidence that this is exactly when God brought them back. Now, I don't have time to tell you why that's the best time for them to come back to Israel but it does have to do with coming back at the beginning of that barley harvest and when we get to chapter 2 we will see 
why this is a clue of future hope. That God has called them out of Moab and He's ended the famine and then He's brought them back to Israel and the barley harvest is about to begin. The trials and the hardships that they have faced are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in them before we get to the end of chapter 4. The first chapter of Ruth is a chapter of wise. Some say that we ought never to ask such a question of God. You might have heard that. Well, you never ask God why. Well, it depends on what type of why we're talking about. If we're talking about, a God, why did you do this? You should have done that. Then I agree. But if we're talking about a, God, I don't know what you're doing in my life. I cannot see your sovereign hand of providence, but God, I really want to trust you. I really want to understand why you're doing the things you're doing. So give me the grace to trust you, and as you see fit, reveal to me the reasons why you're doing these things in my life so that I may learn more of you. That's the prayer we're talking about. Not only can we pray it, we ought to pray it. Why did God allow such hardship and affliction to befall Naomi? Why did he allow this, this ten years that to the natural eye looks so dismal? We know the Lord does not meaninglessly afflict His children. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Why did He ordain such bitter providence in the life of Naomi? That's one of the whys of chapter 1. Why did God decide to end the famine after 10 years? We know Israel didn't deserve revival, nor do we deserve God to move amongst us. Therefore, we pray, not on the basis of our own merit, but on account of His grace, On account of His mercy, we pray that God would visit His people again today and give us bread. Why did Naomi respond with a faithful, or why did Ruth respond with a faithful commitment to follow Jehovah while Orpah turned back? What made the difference in her life? Was Ruth saved because she just makes better decisions? Was Ruth saved because there was some quality within her that compelled God to love her? She was just so much better than Orpah. Friend, the reason why Ruth was saved had nothing to do with the decision that she made, but because God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. Her covenantal commitment was a result of the work that God had already done in her heart. There are more whys in this little book and many answers for us to find in the coming chapters, but for now, God is sufficed to leave us here. He leaves us here in chapter 1, trusting him when we cannot see all that He is doing. If God's providence has been mysterious and bitter in your life and you find yourself asking why, if you find yourself bound in your sins, living in Moab, let me tell you, friend, do not look for some strength or ability or discipline or good work within you to earn your deliverance. There is bread in Bethlehem. God Himself has already made full provision He has visited His people. He has given them the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose body is broken for you. And God's call to you today is not to save yourself or to earn your salvation, but to flee Moab and to come to Bethlehem and to receive what He's already done for you. May the Lord bless these studies in the book of Ruth. And as we continue on in the story, may we... See the providence of God and may it cause us to sing with the hymn writer, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. God of mercy, God of grace, give us eyes to see eyes to see your smiling face within the mystery. May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness to us, sustaining us to consider these verses in the book of Ruth. Lord, may You reveal to us more about Your good, wise providence in our lives. And as we see and as we 
study this family in Moab, may we be able to apply these unchanging truths to our own lives. Conform us unto your image. Help us to trust more in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.